Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's Thanksgiving episode, Seattle Arts and Lectures scheduled this visit from poet Rachel Zucker a long time ago to deliver a lecture she wrote a relatively long time ago. But the timing turned out to be auspicious for those looking to poets and poetry for solace in the wake of political reality. Her lecture on the poetics of wrongness may help you make sense of things. Rachel Zucker is the author of five collections of poetry, including The Pedestrians. She lives in New York, where she teaches at NYU. Zucker spoke as part of the Seattle Arts and Lectures Poetry Series on November 14th at McCall Hall. Thanks to Sonia Harris for our recording. Please note, this talk contains language of an adult nature. Here, Sal's Rebecca Hoogs introduces Rachel Zucker. It is a great honor to introduce Rachel Zucker. Rachel is the author of nine books, including the volumes of poetry, Pedestrians and Museum of Accidents, which were produced by Seattle publisher Wave Books. And Mothers, a collage memoir tour de force of a book that considers poetic mothers, actual mothers, and being a mother. Like Sylvia Plath or Adrienne Rich or Alice Notley, Rachel Zucker has, in all of her work, carved a space for writing about motherhood and babies and birth and kids that was much needed, that I needed as a model when I had my son. My son, who, within the last year, ran a motorized Thomas the Train over my hair, which then got stuck. I can still feel its tiny wheels scribbling against my skull, and which I then had to hack out of the now nest of my hair. Zucker's writing is like this, less carved than hacked out of the now nest of now-ness, out of the mess and chaos and simultaneity and distraction and interruption of motherhood, especially as it intersects with modern life. Dan Chasen in The New Yorker wrote that she learned her fleetness, her New York accretion from Frank O'Hara, but imagine O'Hara with three kids and a teaching gig and a husband and a podcast called Commonplace that I highly encourage you all to eavesdrop on. Frank O'Hara couldn't have hacked it. For anyone wondering how to make poetry out of the madness that can be modern life, Rachel Zucker provides a model and reassurance that it can be done with humor and insight and ugliness and beauty. And now Zucker has added to her life these lectures, which add to our lives. The lecture she will read tonight, The Poetics of Wrongness and Unapologia, was written well before last week's election. I will only speak for myself when I say that I am wrung out with how wrong I was. I am ringing with wrongness. I am a rungless ladder of wrong. And yet, I wouldn't want to be on the right. Zucker's lecture could not. Zucker's lecture could not have foreseen this moment, but it gives me both insight into her practice as it has been and as it may yet be. And it gives me balm. It gives me an idea about the mess and how to mess with the mess and make art, which is to make mistakes and which is to revel in failure. Quote, the poetics of wrongness, she writes in the lecture, cares not for an absent God artist we can't see or hear, but wants the living miracle of a real person in a real place at a real time artist. End quote. 
Or consider this, a poem by Basho that she quoted in Mother's, quote, Deep Autumn, we are alive and can see each other, you and I. What I think we do by seeing together in this poetry series, in any art, in this deep autumn moment of our country, is to be present with each other, to risk failure, to risk feeling, to risk being real. We risk real time. Long live real time. Please join me in welcoming Rachel Zucker. That was beautiful. I am deeply honored that all of you are here tonight and slightly confused. I think that many people are not sure where they should be or what they should be doing, and I certainly don't know. Um, there's a very long list of acknowledgments uh, that I'm not going to read tonight, but they are very important that these lectures were not written alone by any means. And um, they, they live right now on the uh, Bagley Wright Lecture Series website, so you can find the acknowledgments there as well as a list of sources for this lecture and for all the other ones. I will say, though, um, that I'm really honored and pleased that Charlie and Barbara are here tonight. And I am so grateful. These lectures have been writing them and delivering them has been an honor and a terror and has, has really profoundly changed my life. I want to say one more thing before I start, which is that these lectures were written about this one in particular was the first, well, you'll hear, but um, this one was written about 16 months ago. So it's important to keep that in mind when you're listening um, to it. Uh, I decided not to rewrite it right now um, for several reasons. First of all, I think it's still relevant or relevant in a different way. Uh, and also, I am not ready to rewrite it. I don't exactly know how to change it or how to think about it. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that at the very end. The one thing I will say is that I use the word wrongness quite a lot. and. The word wrong has recently been used in a somewhat nefarious way, uh, which is not the way in which I'm using it. The Poetics of Wrongness. I'm writing this lecture in the middle of a particular night in my particular life. This is relevant. Three years ago, I was asked to write these lectures and it seemed impossible. I'd never given lectures. I imagined that giving a lecture would require me to tell other people what I think, what I know, and that's not really my style. Maybe giving a lecture required me to tell people what they should think, which is really not my style. So what is my style, you might wonder. I'm getting to that. Stay with me. Stay in the present, this moment, for a moment I am, at this particular time in my particular life, the mother of three sons, 16, 14, and 8. This is relevant. What you need to know about this experience is that I am always wrong. <laughs> I have learned from my 14-year-old that I am always not listening, 
even when I think I am listening. I am not helping when I'm trying to help. I don't get it even when I'm trying to understand. My body is wrong. My presence is wrong. The only thing more wrong is my absence. When I am present, it is embarrassing. When I am absent, it is wounding. Weren't you ever embarrassed by your parents, he asks, when he doesn't want me to meet him after the movie he's going to with his friends? Yes, I say. I was embarrassed by my mother every moment of every day and night when I was your age, I do not say. (laughs) But it is news to me, unpleasant news, that I am now that mother, that embarrassing mother, although the fact that this is news is probably proof that I wasn't listening, that I don't get it, that everything about me is wrong. My 16-year-old doesn't find me personally embarrassing. From him, I discover that I am rather universally flawed, mistaken, and existentially irredeemable. My wrongness is part of the human condition. I am just one not very interesting specimen of general disappointment. With surprising patience, a raised eyebrow, and frequent deep sighing, he explains the many ways in which my ideas about gender, race, mathematics, science, economics, politics, history, psychology, and countless other topics are outdated, erroneous, and sometimes reprehensible. My just-turned-eight-year-old vaulted into his t- from his toddler phase, in which everything everyone said or did was indisputably wrong if it conflicted with what he thought and wanted, directly into his Woody Allen phase, in which he daily confronts me with questions like, can you tell me one thing that matters after the world ends? See, nothing matters, right? Or... If everyone dies, then why does being a good person while you're alive matter if eventually you're going to die and everyone you ever might help will also die? (laughs) There are no right answers to these questions, and this makes me both wrong and profoundly disappointing. Also, I am specifically wrong about everything having to do with soccer, football, music, the appropriate volume of music, the purpose of school, that there is a purpose, whether so-and-so is a nice person or not, what is funny, what is not funny, what is too rough or dangerous, and the matter of playing ball in the apartment. In other words, everything important. Well, you might be thinking being a parent is like that, but it's not just my kids. This is the summer 18 years into my marriage that everything I say hurts my husband and everything he says hurts me. We misunderstand each other. Our words come out wrong or are taken wrong. Our tone is wrong even if the words don't wound. And when we stop talking, we descend into a terrifying hopelessness. Stay with me. This is relevant. Two days ago, it was gently revealed to me that the three lectures I'd spent seven months researching and writing are too long, about too many things, simultaneously unfounded and overly informational, too personal and too impersonal, (laughs) basically failures. Perhaps with, with work, says my editor, these drafts could become essays, but not lectures. 
So to summarize, my math is wrong, my logic is wrong, my presence is wrong, my absence is wrong, my gender is wrong, insofar as I come from a mode of thinking in which I believe that gender is a real thing rather than a fluid social construct infinitely complicated and slippery. Being male would make me more wrong, but being female is also wrong, and conflating gender with race or sexual preference is definitely wrong. My heterosexuality and whiteness also make me wrong, always, all the time, in the sense that they confer unto me privileges at great cost to others, so that any rightness I have in the sense of power or agency is wrongly mine and part of what makes me wrong in the world and certainly part of what makes the world so very, very wrong. At 43, I am too young and too old. Old people look at me wistfully, teenagers with disgust, and children with distrust. Also, the whole world hates Americans, even if they want to be one. Clearly, I am in the Hillary Clinton stage of my life. Everything about me makes someone extremely angry. Who does she think she is? Who do I think I am? And what does this have to do with poetry? In this climate of wrongness, it is difficult to say anything. This isn't new. This is just more apparent to me than ever before. The volume of wrongness is turned up so high, it's impossible to ignore and difficult to shout over. To say anything, even to say, I'm wrong, is wrong. White people should listen. To be silent or meek and or apologetic is wrong. Women should be strong and assertive. And speaking of this climate, I am one of everyone who is irreparably destroying the environment. I am more wrong than my children can even imagine. So what woke me up in the middle of this night was the realization that all this wrongness is excruciating and is somehow exactly right and exactly what I need to talk about. These last seven months, writing about photography, confessional poetry, and the ethical considerations of writing about real people, I was trying to build a case for my thinking and convince you that my ideas were right and interesting and worth your time. In this way, I'd abandoned what made me a poet and the very nature of my poetics. I first started writing and still write poetry because the world and its people and ideas are wrong insane, immoral, disappointing, and unimaginably terrible. I write because I feel wrong, sad, crazy, disappointed, disappointing, and unimaginably terrible. I write to expose wrongness and to confess wrongness, and with a sense that doing so is futile at best, and more likely part of wrongness and compounds wrongness. I write against Mine is a poetics of opposition and provocation that I never outgrew. Against wrongness, out of wrongness, with wrongness. Here's my current definition of a poet. I am wrong, and you are wrong, and I'm willing to say it, therefore I am a poet. A poet is one who feels wrong in a wrong world and is willing to speak even when doing so proves her own wrongness, ugliness, brokenness, complicity. This is not the same as saying that I write poetry to feel better or to be forgiven or that the goal of poetry is to right wrongs. 
Perhaps some people feel better when they write poetry. Perhaps some poems make the world less wrong. What I'm trying to explain, though, is that the athleticism of poetry is the poet's ability to stay in and with wrongness, of being willing to be disliked for being too smart and too stupid, too direct and incomprehensible, elitist and the lowest of the low, and all for what? For the privilege of pointing out that everything in the world is wrong. Wrongness is intrinsic to poetry, which asserts with its most defining formal device, the line break, that the margins of prose are wrong, or with its attention to diction, that the ways in which we've come to understand and use words is wrong. Maybe you think I'm wrong in the way I'm using the word wrong. Fine. I embrace it. I've never written to please you, even if I liked it when you were pleased. I write to talk back sometimes to myself, not to tell you what I think, but to figure out what I think, which is always a process of proving myself and others wrong. It is the job of poems to undermine, to refute, retort, re-see, disrupt, to tell you nicely or aggressively that you are wrong, that the world is fucked up, and that all our modes of understanding and expression are suspect, and that there is nothing and no one above reproach or scrutiny. Poets speak even when it is excruciating, even when no one is listening, often when the poet would be better off staying silent. That's what a poem is, a breaking of silence, a form that makes and then breaks silence over and over. Poetry is the language of pain and grief and hurt and love, and most people in our country hate it, but often need it and sometimes find solace and pleasure in it. I've learned from being a daughter and a mother that finding your parent wrong or being told how wrong you are is a complicated act of attachment, separation, individuation, and love. A parasitic sort of love, perhaps, but love, in that it is a way of paying attention, of giving a shit. The alternative to being wrong is being ignored. So here are some assertions about poetry offered in the mode of opposition, without apology, with complete certainty that you, audience, along with my sons, my friends, my students, the culture, the subculture, the past, the future, strangers and intimates, both living and dead, are sure to consider what follows wrong. Enjoy being in good company. Enjoy the brief pleasure of feeling that I am more wrong than you are. Believe me you are also wrong. (laughs) Here are the six anti-tenets of the poetics of wrongness. One, poetry should be beautiful. John Keats is wrong. (laughs) Or the Grecian urn is wrong when it says, beauty is truth, truth beauty, that is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. No. First of all, to the extent that I even understand what beauty is, I distrust it and reject it as a quality poetry should pursue or attempt to embody. Beauty is not an inherent quality. It is rather the manipulation of a thing, a bettering and idealizing of the ordinary and the real. By this logic, then, beauty is not truth at all, but closer to anti-truth. 
My definition of beauty may be a historical. My beauty, a quality primarily invoked to make me buy something I don't need or believe something that isn't true, an industry sold primarily to women to make them make themselves different than they would naturally look, might not be Keats's beauty, just as I'm pretty sure my idea of truth was not the, is not the same as his was. Perhaps Keats or the urn was referring to a beauty akin to the Greek notion of perfection, a just right proportion that already exists, that waits to be identified rather than made, in which the circle might be the perfect shape or painting the perfect art. It's this kind of thinking that underlines Samuel Coleridge's famous delineation of prose and poetry. I wish our clever young poets would remember my homely definitions of prose and poetry. That is, prose equals words in their best order, poetry the best words in the best order. Best, perfect, beautiful. I have just as much trouble with perfection or bestness as I do with beauty. Perfection and beauty imply flawlessness, and flawlessness is an untruth. Perhaps that's why the poem To Dorothy by Marvin Bell moves me. To Dorothy. You are not beautiful exactly. You are beautiful inexactly. You let a weed grow by the mulberry and a mulberry grow by the house. So close in the personal quiet of a windy night, it brushes the wall and sweeps away the day till we sleep. A child said it, and it seemed true. Things that are lost are all equal, but it isn't true. If I lost you, the air wouldn't move, nor the tree grow. Someone would pull the weed, my flower. The quiet wouldn't be yours. If I lost you, I'd have to ask the grass to let me sleep. The poetics of wrongness rejects flawlessness. Even the perfect metaphor breaks down in this poem. The poetics of wrongness is only interested in perfection as a manifestation of the Greek notion of teleos, or completeness, because completeness contains everything, including the wrongness of things, the flaws, the weeds, the inexact beauty of Dorothy, and the poet's desire to write his love for Dorothy, which is a necessary and necessarily failed inexact endeavor. Even if we replace beauty with a notion of perfection or completeness that includes flaws, I still have a problem with Keats's construction. The relationship between teleos and truth is not a simple synonymous is. The relationship between beauty and truth is wildly complicated, complex, impossible to define. For this reason, the poetics of wrongness likes to fester in this space, the filled-with-error space of the relationship between truth and beauty. When I was a graduate student at the University of Iowa, a famous painter-poet came to deliver a lecture. I remember him showing paintings of the crucifixion of Jesus and saying that all art is beautiful. I raised my hand, and I asked, what if you wanted to make art that wasn't beautiful? This famous poet-painter explained that one could make art of ugly, difficult content, but for the art to succeed, it would transcend ugliness and become beautiful. Oh, teacher, <laughs> I say you are wrong. I fight back. I reject. 
I too love the maid and ache with appreciation at the well-made, but the poetics of wrongness rejects anything that suggests that poetry is a pursuit by which we take the ordinary and put makeup on it, make it better, make it best. Even if it were possible, I am not aiming for alchemy. The notion that art is the rendering of the ordinary into the transcendent or extraordinary is wrong. I espouse instead the pursuit of truth, which includes wrongness and what isness, with an awareness that the pursuit of truth is inherently flawed and doomed to failure. Two, poetry should be slant. Speaking of truth, here's another famous poet I'd like to contradict. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant, Emily Dickinson wrote, and she was wrong. Actually, the people who interpreted her directive to mean that poets should intentionally try to make the truth more complicated than it is, they are wrong. I prefer to read Dickinson's short poem as a wittier, quieter, but no less powerful version of Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men shouting, you can't handle the truth. (laughs) Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies, too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise, as lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. Dickinson's not saying don't tell all the truth. She's not even saying don't tell all the truth at once. She's saying that the truth, unmediated and given directly, will make men blind. I read Dickinson's use of the word success as containing a heavy dose of proto-irony. Somehow, though, in the line, tell all the truth but tell it slant, the word slant has been taken to mean that it is the poet's job to dole out truth in small doses or show the world in flashes or dimly illuminated because telling a slant truth is kinder, less blinding, or maybe just more interesting. This kind of thinking has been used to bolster a poetics of coyness and indirection that often slips into glibness, abstraction, and meaninglessness. It's hard enough to know if there is such a thing as truth. Don't waste your time trying to make it less clear or sit there in the dark waiting for lightning to make things momentarily visible. Be as clear as you can possibly be. Always blind me, I dare you. The poetics of wrongness responds to slantness in Whitman's voice and with his words. Now I wash the gum from your eyes. You must habit yourself to the dazzle of the light and of every moment of your life. Three, a poem should be short. Wrong. (laughs) A poem should be as long as it needs to be. The poems I love often brush up against the rules of form, then run roughshod over those rules, then turn around and spit in the face of those rules. It's not that a short poem is necessarily impossible, but I reject absolutely the notion that what makes a poem a poem is that it contains language that is best, see number one, or a thing of beauty made with language, see number one, or difficult, tricky, altered truth for the sake of inventiveness or kindness, see number two, or that what distinguishes poetry from other forms of language is brevity, concision, not an extra word in sight. Here is a tiny, lovely poem by W.S. Merwin. 
which I have now lost. There we go. Separation. Your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle. Everything I do is stitched with its color. Here is another short poem, this one by Margaret Atwood, less sweet but also powerful. You fit into me. You fit into me like a hook into an eye, a fish hook, an open eye. (laughs) And perhaps my favorite short poem, Poetry, by Marianne Moore. Poetry. I, too, dislike it. Reading it, however, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers in it, after all, a place for the genuine. The poetics of wrongness can accept these poems, which have a remarkable ability to surprise and confuse and contradict in a small space. Moore's contempt isn't perfect. It has a fault in which the appeal of poetry slips through. And here she has made this neat little space for the genuine in her poem, in part by contradicting herself and the implied world and their dislike for poetry of the first line. But shortness as a goal? That I reject. I don't support Occam's razor or the law of parsimony. Poems are not problems to be solved with the fewest possible words. Length as a standard of measure for poetry is irrelevant. But if it matters at all, I would say that it is more difficult for short poems to fulfill a poetics of wrongness. See how well behaved these poems are that I just read you? How easily I can insert them into this lecture? How easily you can make that poetry sigh and move on? They are portable, easily memorizable, they are digestible, and often feel pre-digested. And these are the good ones. Many short poems read to me as self-satisfied products of a mind that is condescending to me. The poet has chewed up the world and regurgitated it into my open beak. Get away from me, lyric poet of beauty and perfectness, with your it-won't-hurt-a-bit IV, through which you intend to painlessly insert the essence of something into my bloodstream. Give me, instead, food with all its fiber, a whole disgusting moving worm and a pile of pebbles. The poetics of wrongness prefers real food, even if it makes me sick, even if I have to chew and chew and chew. The poetics of wrongness rejects a poetry that wants to be unobtrusive or invisible in its form. The poetics of wrongness doesn't want a chiseled jewel or a small purse of emotions recollected in tranquility. The poetics of wrongness want the kind of poetry that Sylvia Plath said, at its best, can do you a lot of harm. Of course it can harm. The blood jet is poetry. There is no stopping it, wrote Plath. I want Bernadette Mayer's unwieldy, book-length, 150-page poem, Midwinter Day, that she supposedly, it is impossible, wrote all in one day, that travels from dreams to consciousness and back, that includes the voices of her children, her town, history, sex, what she eats for lunch, gossip, lines in Shakespearean meter, prose, and common lists. The history of every historical thing, including God, but not including all men and women individually, is a violent mess like this ice. But for the spaces, even hunchbacked history has allowed in between the famous and loud for something that's defined as what does please us. 
which is perhaps the story of an intimate family. Though you won't believe or will be unable to love it, driven to research love's limits in the present solitude as if each man or woman in the world was the only one person with everything I've mentioned separate in him, or she didn't represent history at all, though he or she had stories to tell and was just sitting kind of crazily before an open window in midwinter. How else can she begin to describe accurately the incoherence of the mind, of life, being a woman, being alive? This poem is impossible and feels nearly unstoppable, and she does it successfully by including her awareness of the inherent failure of the project. From dreams I made sentences, then what I've seen today, then past the past of afternoons of stories like memory, to seeing a plain introduction of modes of love and reason, then to end, I guess, with love, a method to this winter season. Instead of the Fabergé egg of a short lyric, I prefer the aesthetics of intractability and exhaustive exhaustedness, the physicality and ruptured rapture, the unapologetic plain-spokenness of James Schuyler's long poems, for example, that are too long to be poems but are poems. His lines are too long for the page, too long to scan, too long to function as standalone lines, but they are poetry. His tally of physical complaints, his observations about garbage trucks, and air conditioners are anti-poetic and embraced and lauded by the poetics of wrongness. Or, I want the book-length tape the book-length poem Tape for the Turn of the Year by A.R. Ammons, in which he typed and later did not edit a poem that begins and ends at a length determined by a two-and-a-quarter-inch wide roll of adding machine paper that would end up being 200 pages long. Ammons loves and hates the role of paper, adores and despises the project. The poem is so long that his back suffers. The project is like a long marriage and provides him ample opportunity to be wrong, to change his mind, find himself over and over again. It is epic and anti-epic. Odysseus is a man trying to get home. Ammons is a man who almost never leaves home. He must continue the poem until the role runs out. He is Penelope at her loom, but never unweaving, and it is the moments that Ammons grows exasperated, exhausted, and bored that he comes upon exquisite language-making. Thank goodness he did not edit the poem down to the crucial plot points or the greatest collection of best lines. It is the discursive, rambling journey of this poem and its many mistakes that is its glory. What do you get when you mix the pursuits of brevity and beauty? Advertising. The motto, the jingle, the political slogan. A pitch that should take no longer than a ride in an elevator. The poetics of wrongness prefers the stairs. Prefers a half-finished crumbling stairs to nowhere. The poetics of wrongness can't fit in an elevator, wouldn't know what button to press, doesn't know where it's going, suffers from a fear of elevators, and has forgotten its keys and wallet. <laughs> the poetics of wrongness wants poems that are expansive, inclusive, contradictory, self-conscious, ashamed, and irreverent. It's hard to be those things in 100 words or less. What 
you might ask, is the advantage of this ongoingness, this going on and onness. I don't have time for all this meandering, you might say. I find long-windedness inconsiderate and annoying. Well, first of all, the poetics of wrongness prefers poems that some people worship and other people detest to poems that everyone likes. So your dislike does not worry me. Second, one note does not a music make. Third, the poetics of wrongness values process over product, and longer poems are almost always more honest about their status as made things than short poems are. I am not saying that longer is always better. The poetics of wrongness is not interested in who can eat the most hot dogs without throwing up or who can hold her breath underwater for the longest time. The poetics of wrongness likes a good rant or jeremiad but disdains the filibuster. It is not length for length's sake that I appreciate. Let's not hold longness up as the new beauty. A bad poem that goes on for a long time is surely worse than if it were quickly over. <laughs> it's, it's not length that makes something good, but there is something about the presence of time in a poem that often pleases the poetics of wrongness, and something about the sleight of hand, refined, sublimed, edited nature of short poems that often makes the poetics of wrongness cringe. The very long or book-length poems I've mentioned take time and are about time, and in the time that it takes to write these poems, the poet punches a time card in the time clock of the poem and begins to become real to the reader and to herself in a different way. There is space by create, created by time. Can you see my son rolling his eyes at my misuse of physics? There is space created by time for the poet to inhabit and for the reader too. When one sees a painting by Jackson Pollock, one notices color and composition, of course, but the thrill of these paintings is the way in which the viewer sees a record of Pollock's body in motion, moving through time and space as he splattered or threw paint. All made works are records of an artist's time, but some are more visible in the recording of this time or in the preoccupation with time. Some art goes to great lengths to pretend it emerged fully formed, like Athena from the leg of Zeus. The poetics of wrongness is not interested in art made by the gods or by God and gives no gold star for the illusion of effortlessness. You say it is boring to watch a person sit in a chair hour after hour, day after day, breathing in and out and in and out, taking breaks to eat and shit and make love and listen to the weather. You say this is not what art should be about or what art is for. The poetics of wrongness cares not for an absent God artist we can't see or hear, but wants the living miracle of a real person in a real place at a real time artist. The Poetics of Wrongness says that art is these moments of repetition and recurrence and realness, and that in the time it takes to read such a long poem, in the experiential recognition of how long it took to write such a poem, the poet becomes real. With frustration and boredom and anger, with familiarity, adoration, and gratitude, the writer and reader get to spend time together. The poem, violating the laws of time and space, is their meeting place, the place where they become visible to one another and begin to have a relationship that is both imaginary and real, full of faults and failure and desire. It is like sex, and it is what all art, short or long, aspires to.
Four, poetry should be timeless. Speaking of time, the poetics of wrongness has a problem with timelessness as a virtue. A journalist once said to me, journalism is important to a large number of people for a very short period of time, whereas poetry is important to very few people for a potentially very long period of time. Okay, maybe. But this does not necessarily lead to the widely held idea that a good poem should be timeless. I've already said that being full of time, visibly, audibly, palpably full of time, can be an asset. And I know that timeless is not meant to imply without time. Most poems have some relationship to narrative and narrativity and cannot exist without time. But the Poetics of Wrongness rejects timelessness and lastingness as an attribute and suggests timeliness as an alternative. The Poetics of Wrongness wants a poetry that is conscious of time, timeful, and that is, a partic- and that is of a particular time, timely, and that is relevant, timely. Some poems will last and continue to be relevant, but the Poetics of Wrongness wants a poem that is hard to capture and hard to hold. The Poetics of Wrongness wants a poem that will not last forever because it is fresh, alive, unstable, potentially, hopefully useful at a now moment because the poem is on its deathbed. The Poetics of Wrongness is not afraid of hospice. Everything alive dies. Everything fresh expires. The Poetics of Wrongness wants poems with a shelf life made of living ingredients. The Poetics of Wrongness would like artists to rethink the idea that the purpose of making art is to make something that will outlive and outlast our minor mortal lives. Rethink the goal of making something that will endure. Rethink the virtue of timelessness. timelessness. Do you want to write a poem that will outlive you, that will last forever? Really? Like plastic? (laughs) Toxic waste? Five, poetry should be universal. One of the great long poems of all time is Walt Whitman's Song of Myself. The poetics of wrongness embraces Whitman and his barbaric yawp, his multitudes, his do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. The relationality of the poem as it reaches out to the reader, its willingness to imagine its own demise, its insistence, its long-windedness. The Poetics of Wrongness loves Whitman's inclusiveness, his energy, his corporality, even his unbounded ego and passion. But the Poetics of Wrongness rejects the way Whitman's love of everything has been used to espouse universality as a necessary quality in poems. Here are the first three lines of Song of Myself. I celebrate myself and sing myself, and what I assume you shall assume, for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. Oh, the poetics of wrongness does wildly love this poem. But to say that Whitman's open arms poetics, his democratic attention, makes him a universal everyman, writing for and to a universal everyman, is a misunderstanding of Whitman, just as needless indirection is a misunderstanding of Dickinson. The poetics of wrongness is deeply suspicious of universality. Let me stay instead with the specific, the particular, the peculiar, the personal, even if it means that I am accused of narcissism. It is just fine to look at myself if I am looking with attention and with scrutiny. 
and often it is not myself I gaze at in the still pool, but rather you, the other, an other, and the world with all its wrongness. Even if your atoms and mine are remarkably similar, even if we are all made up of what everything in the cosmos is made up of, let me not assume I know you, or worse, that I am you. Poetry is a mirror which makes beautiful that which is distorted, wrote Percy Bysshe Shelley. The poetics of wrongness would like to try to describe the distorted and the distortion without making it beautiful. Pain is filtered in a poem so that it becomes finally in the end pleasure, wrote Mark Strand. The poetics of wrongness would like a pain that stays pain. Not because this is a poetics of sadomasochism, although the poetics of wrongness has no problem with sadomasochism, but because it is a po- poetics of what isness, not what would be niceness. The poetics of wrongness rails against the way in which universalism is often used as a way of excluding certain subject matters or tones or bodies from poetry, the way encouraging poets to write about common experiences that everyone often has is this that everyone has often has the opposite effect of leading to a poetry that is certainly that is only about certain often male often white often heterosexual, often normative experiences that, according to straight white men, are universal. The poetics of wrongness prefers instead to write with the parts of our brains and hearts and souls and emotions that are broken and disrupted, to write out of our fetishes and aphasias, the way Chuck Close, who is face-blind, has spent a lifetime making portraits. The poetics of wrongness suggests that it is in the specific, honest portrayal of our most peculiar, obscene, esoteric qualities that one will provoke empathy and identification. Here is Philip Roth, a writer full of wrongness in American Pastoral. You fight your superficiality, your shallowness, so as to try to come at people without unreal expectations, without an overload of bias or hope or arrogance, as equals, man to man, as we used to say, and yet you never fail to get them wrong. You get them wrong before you meet them, while you're anticipating meeting them. You get them wrong while you're with them, and then you go home and tell somebody else about the meeting, and you get them wrong again. Since the same generally goes for them as with you, the whole thing is really a dazzling illusion, empty of all perception, an astonishing farce of misperception. And yet, what are we to do about this terribly significant business of other people, which gets bled of the significance we think it has and takes on instead a significance that is ludicrous? So ill-equipped are we to envision one another's interior workings and invisible aims. Is everyone to go off and lock the door and sit secluded like the lonely writers do in a soundproof self cell, summoning people out of words and then proposing that these word people are closer to the real thing than the real people that we mangle every day with our ignorance? The fact remains that getting people right is not what living is all about anyway. It's about getting them wrong that is living, getting them wrong and wrong and wrong and then on careful reconsideration, getting them wrong again. That's how we know we're alive, we're wrong. Yes, 
I say, yes to that. The poetics of wrongness knows that summoning people out of words and mangling real people with words is always an act of getting them wrong. Our word people are no more or less wrong than real people, and as writers, we should try to be at least as alive and wrong in our writing as we are in our real lives. Even if we are able to rescue universality from its highly problematic history, its tendency to mean majority or mainstream when it says common, even if we were able to appreciate the good-hearted social utopianism that motivates liberal notions of universality, I still reject it. The poetics of wrongness rejects the notion that poetry should have a restorative effect on the world. And the poetics of wrongness rejects the idea that presenting an idealized utopian view of the world will have a restorative effect on the individual or the collective. This vision of the artist as creating an act of tsim in which she or he finds the shattered pieces of the once perfect, whole, divine, and gathers and restores them is offensive to the poetics of wrongness. I believe that there are universal feelings, qualities, experiences, but I do not believe that foregrounding our commonalities rather than our differences will lead to better poetry or will result in us treating each other less poorly. Writing out of the universal is often confused with writing for the everyman, which can too often be kind a kind of lowest common denominator poetics, in this way deeply underestimating the intelligence of everyman or a sort of total abstraction that renders everyone equally estranged from meaning. Notions that we are all created equal, that women can do anything men can do, that really we're all the same, and other liberal, well-intentioned fantasies have not kept us from killing each other. We see difference and we act on difference. Let us at least admit it and return to a particularity in a relational context an I that is singular, but always reaching out to you and you and you. The I of Alice Notley, who the poetics of wrongness does worship. Here is the end of her long poem, The Prophet. Do not generally go about giving advice. That which is everybody's business is nobody's business. Let thyself become undeceived through the beauty and strangeness of the physical world. It is almost possible to believe that if you look at it, really see it, be it for yourself, you will be free. They say it will be cloudy tomorrow, but they are often wrong. There is a lot to say about two and one Your life is not small or mean. It is beautiful and big, full of planets, clouds, sky, and also your tiniest things of you. One is you and all this and two, and yet you must never stop making jokes. You are not great. You are life. Six, poetry is close to godliness. The poetics of wrongness is anthropocentric. It is written by human beings, for human beings, and about human beings. It is interested in the divine and nature as seen and experienced through the human senses and intellect. In its preference for the literal, for the direct, for the domestic, for the political, for the relational, for the sociological, for the individual, for th- it can be perceived as atheist. This is not necessarily the case. 
The poetics of wrongness knows that ideology is a petri dish for wrongness. The poetics of wrongness is foundationally anti-fundamentalist, while recognizing, of course, that being anti-anything can easily develop into fundamentalism. The poetics of wrongness recognizes prayer as an ancient and enduring form of writing out of wrongness, both external and internal. The poetics of wrongness loves the impossibility of monotheism, but only for its impossibility and for the ways in which it reveals the fragility and pathos and imagination and terror of humankind. The poetics of wrongness knows that whomever and whatever and however created the world, it wasn't by mine own hand, and I have only the power to name and love and suffer and die. If the poetics of wrongness believes in any god, it is the god of human failure, a god imagined to make visible in us all that is ungodly, that is, Doubt, weakness, fear, ineptitude, physicality, and mortality. The poetics of wrongness is interested in getting close to God or beauty or perfection only insofar as the journey reveals the inherent and absolute failure of our inevitable reaching. As Whitman said, why should I wish to see God better than this day? I see something of God each hour of the 24 and each moment then in the faces of men and women, I see God. And in my own face in the glass, I find letters from God dropped in the street and everyone is signed by God's name. And I leave them where they are. For I know that wheresoever I go, others will punctually come forever and ever. Or they will not. Perhaps we will finally destroy the world, in which case let us be thankful that we made poetry and had poetry while we still had eyes to read. It is by misunderstanding these poets and these ideas about poetry and feeling misunderstood by them that I have come to have the courage and energy to say anything at all. I've spent most of my life figuring out who I want to be by figuring out how to be unlike and like my mother. I watch my sons come into adulthood by wanting to do everything their own way, which arises out of an awareness of my wrongness, my insufficiency, which arises out of their awareness of who I am or who they think I am. My husband and I hurt each other as we struggle to see each other as separate, but connected. Human babies are astonishingly dependent and remain so for an impossibly long period of time. It is remarkable how long it takes for infants to perceive that they are not one with the universe, not at one with the face that is hopefully staring back at them with love. Oppositionality is not an act of violence or hatred to the one opposed. Poetry, wrote Allen Ginsberg, is not an expression of the party line. It's that time of night, lying in bed, thinking what you really think, making the private world public. That's what the poet does. The poetics of wrongness agrees. Part of knowing what I think is knowing what I do not agree with, saying no to the party line, and making our private disagreements public? Yes. That's what the poet does. What if there were no more party line? I wrote. (laughs) 
Would poetry cease to exist, cease to be necessary? I say that such an age of agreement and sameness and rightness will never come to be, and that poetry will therefore always be necessary. I would love to be proven wrong. Um, so just a, just a tiny little thing, which is, where are we now? I fear that we've entered an age of wrongness, unlike anything that has come before, or that white people, straight people, especially straight white people, especially straight white men, have suddenly come to realize how wrong and fucked up this country and daily life has always been for marginalized people and people from underrepresented groups. Either way, we are in trouble. And I think that even the people who are happy with the outcome of this election are in trouble. Uh, so the first thing I would do to change this lecture is to add another anti-tenet. Um, it would be seven. Poetry should be apolitical. Um, poetry can and should and perhaps always is political. I don't know about that yet. I need to think that through. Um, but especially the Poetics of Wrongness believes that poetry has to be political. And I will say that I've seen so many poems uh, in the past few days shared on public on social media more than I've ever seen um, before. We have a new need for poetry, and I would not choose this outcome for anything. I'm not saying that. But I do suspect that some very good art, and especially some very good poems, are about to be written. I don't think these poems are worth the lives and freedom um, but the poems might help us find solace, and more important, perhaps they will be part of what will call us to action. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. I want to start by asking you about wrongness and whether you would say, is this an evolution of your thinking or an articulation of what has always been there all along, i.e., would you have given this lecture 10 years ago? Well, I, as I, it's really true that the lecture was written in the middle of the night, and it started with a different title. It was called Fuck You, name inserted. Um, <laughs> this is everything I know about poetry. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the original mm -hmm. title. Um, but I don't think I knew those things um, about poetry, or I didn't know those things that I felt. I mean, uh, you know, and part, part, some of those, those things, if you, I don't, I don't, if you were in my age, let's say at the University of mm -hmm. Iowa, for example, um, poetry was really not supposed to be political. It was supposed to be timeless. It was supposed to be uh, pretty much all those things mm -hmm. that I said I don't think it should be. So it took me a long time to mm -hmm. kind of throw those, those things out. I do think that I kind of knew those things before I went to graduate school, mm -hmm. and then I kind of had to unlearn them and then relearn them or figure them out for myself. I had to say, like, wait, wait, why is Adrian Rich not an important poet? Mm -hmm. Says you. 
Um, so I, yeah, maybe 10, I, I don't know, 10 years before. No, cause I wasn't, I wasn't quite as broken. Mm-hmm. I, maybe I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think there was a time when your aesthetics was one of rightness? No. That's, that I can answer. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, no. You know, uh, when I was an undergraduate, uh, I was writing my poems and so excited about them. Um, although I wasn't an English major because um, at Yale there was a very, very conservative English department and, like, you know, only dead men wrote poetry. And I was like, well, that's weird because I can't be a dead man, so how can I write poetry? <laughs> um, but I did write poems, like, in the margins, and I, mm-hmm. and, and I would submit them to contests and stuff. And then there was a big prize uh, when you graduated, and I remember the, um, the professor who was in charge of the prize, whose name I even remember, uh, came up and said to me, I just want you to know that we really argued for a long time about your poems, and most people thought they weren't even poems. Well, like, thanks for letting me know. <laughs> so um, they, they, my poems were not considered po- poetry because they were too long and they were too chatty and they were not lyric enough and they were not condensed enough and they were too narrative and they were too confessional and they were which you know I have a whole other lecture about that and they were too um too much about femaleness and they you know they they so so yeah they weren't they weren't conforming um and I think I don't know why I I didn't at that time it wasn't I wasn't writing in any kind of protest I was just writing in kind of Oblivion, or just writing because I thought that was the what I how I that was the only way I could write, um, and I and I think a kind of um, ignorance on that level has actually been quite helpful to me. Like I remember the first time someone said, "Like what gave you the courage to be a mommy poet?" and I was like, "I didn't know that was a bad thing," and I'd already written like three books. <laughs> of mommy poems and then like later someone was like wow you didn't mind being the mommy poet i was like so i just didn't know you're so brave thank you (laughs) thanks you said at the very end that you think poetry should be political what do you think makes a poem political and how can those of us who are trying to find our way to writing political poetry, like, what defines that? What can define that for us? Well, this is why I'm not ready to exactly yet to write this part of it, because there is a part of me that thinks that all poetry is political, um, or all good poetry or all meaningful poetry or all significant poetry or maybe what I just mean is all the poetry that I am currently interested in is political. Um, I mean, on its most basic level, and, and the reason I say it like that, I don't want it to just be meaningless, but we were at um, the University of Washington today in a, in a graduate class, and um, it's not that that a poem has to be polemical or that it, it has to uh, be about a, a political candidate or uh, 
that its content has to be one specific thing explicitly for it to be political. Certainly poetry that disrupts language in a certain way uh, without being explicitly in its content about um, politics can be a hugely important political statement. Um, but also poetry in which... Um, someone writes about their daily lived experience and that person uh, has not been represented uh, in the world of poetry or literature, that's a political statement. Or, um, I, you know, any... So I, I, I don't think there's one thing that, can, that, has, that a poetry, poem has to have in order to be political, except that I do think it either has to be about people or have people in it, or it has to have... Uh, some sense of context for why there are no people in it. So I guess that might be. I'm going, you know, to really think about the the people as the base of the political. But I think that I think um, beyond that, that most of the poets that I have spoken to um, are trying to find ways to write work that is. Uh, not just political because all poetry is political, but much more clearly uh, how can poetry, can poetry be uh, an act of, of social justice? Can poetry actually change, any, change anything? And I think that, that most of the poets I know are really struggling with that question and they're trying, some of them are saying, I, you know, the more I want to be... Um, socially and politically aware and active, the more I turn to prose. And other poets are saying exactly the opposite. Um, so I don't, I don't really know yet what's going to happen, but I do certainly feel like um, in 1996, when I was graduating from Iowa, it was really n not the case that people were really talking about how to make poetry political or how to make their lives as poets part of a, of a really meaningful social uh, movement. And now I don't know anyone who's not thinking about that. I really don't. Sometimes they come to graduate school still wanting to do some kind of very abstract thing where, like, the language sounds pretty. And mm -hmm. I, that takes, like, I don't know, five minutes in my class anyway before I'm like, yeah, but why? Why do you want to do that? I'm fine with that as an idea. But they never stick to that. And it's not because I'm brainwashing them. I mean, all you have to do is ask them, why do you want to make something beautiful out of language? It's, it's just, that's all you have to ask. And then, th then it turns out it's like, well, because, you know, uh, I've had this traumatic experience and nobody will listen to me. Or because, you know, my, par my parents hate me because I'm gay and I want... Yeah, it, mm -hmm. they're, they're, no one sticks with the, I'm trying to make a, a lovely thing. Well, I have two questions that are related to teaching, and one is here from the audience, and it's, if poetry is whatever it needs to be, then how do you teach it? How do you teach students to write it? Like if poetry can be everything, anything? Yeah, I think so. This, it's interesting. I gave this lecture once before. This is only the second time that I've given it, and um, the, there's two questions that, that almost that came up last time. Um, one is, uh, but I like short poems. People get very, very upset about like, like my, I don't know why that's like the most upsetting thing. And then the other is like, 
but are there no standards? Um, like how, like if all, if you're just, tr- what well, you're trying to write bad poetry, that's to the, what, where does that leave us? Mm-hmm. And you know, I, how do you teach? I don't even know you can teach poetry anyway. So, I mean, you can, it's just like, you can't, you can't actually help someone have a baby. You can be there with them and you can have more experience than they have. And you can say, this seems normal. This seems not normal. Why don't you, <laughs> you know, get up and walk around, you know, or lean over the bed. You can say to someone, seems like you really want to write some poems about gun violence. That seems like a great idea. Why don't you read this book? Why don't you read this book? Or you can say, you're really, really, you know, the kind of person who writes amazing poems and then comes in every single week and asks for everybody to tell you why your poems are bad. That's so interesting. Why do you keep doing that? Maybe you should get up and walk around. You know? <laughs> um, but you can't write the poem mm-hmm. for them, and you can't like have the baby for them. So uh, to me, it's I, I yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't answer your question at all. No, that's that's okay. good. I, I mean, related question, and I, I sort of asked you this earlier today because I've been thinking about you know how do we teach ourselves. How do we teach our kids? How do we teach our poems? How do we get our poems and our kids, either with our, the kids that we have or our students and ourselves as writers, to be okay with making mistakes and with getting in trouble, with protests, with speaking up? I feel like this is antithetical to our culture to some degree, right? To be okay with mistakes and to be okay with failure and to be okay with um, speaking out of turn to some degree. I mean, that's not what a lot of us were taught, and then how do you te- reteach yourself and even teach the people in your life to be okay with, to, to be brave, I guess, and to re- take risks? I mean, I, I first started writing poetry um, in fifth grade. I was a very, very miserable um, person. Uh, my parents were getting divorced. My grandmother, who was really the only safe person in my life, died very quickly of pancreatic cancer, Um, and I was an only child and I felt, you know, completely alone. I was also temperamentally unsuited for happiness at that time. (laughs) Um, so I started writing poetry and the main reason that I chose poetry was that I, uh, I probably had some kind of learning disability that nobody noticed, but I couldn't spell at all. Like, I couldn't even read my own, and I had terrible, terrible handwriting, and so I could barely even read my own writing. And my understanding of being a good writer was that you had good handwriting and you could spell, because that's what I was taught in elementary school. And so, But poetry was the thing you could do that you, that you could, you know, no one could tell you you were wrong. Um, and you could do whatever you wanted and, you know, poets didn't have to use punctuation and they didn't have to know how to spell and they didn't have to go have good handwriting. So for me, poetry was always the place where, um, you could make mistakes mm-hmm. and you were just allowed to talk about your feelings and nobody could tell you you were wrong, which, you know, basically nothing has really changed for me, um, since fifth grade. Um, and I think, I think that hopefully... You know, my my nine year old is a is a very very literal child. Um, with he's he's nice, but he is he's not a creative person at all. And it's sort of painful to watch. Like he has no tolerance to make mistakes. And this is like, 
with him, I would say this is the fundamental role of my mothering him is to how how to help him tolerate making mistakes. Um, I went in to teach um, his class poetry, and I was having them do all these things like, you know, the egg is white. White is what? You know, it's it's light. They had these blown out eggs. Light is what? And you know, these kids in the class were saying things like. The egg is as white as a dry erase board that has been erased 5,000 times. The egg is as light as a room that you walk into where all the furniture has been taken away. And my son was like, it's as white as white. <laughs> and it's as light as something that's very light. <laughs> like it was that, that's like it. You can't, there was nothing else, right? Um, <sighs> I don't think he's going to be a poet. I think he's going to do something else. <laughs> um, but I think, I do, I do think that, I mean, obviously if we don't on some level, whether it's in poetry or whether we all, I mean, who am I to tell anyone what to think? But this is a foundational belief of mine. If you don't find something in your life that you can tolerate making mistakes and being wrong and seeing yourself as at least a little bit, if not a total failure, you cannot develop empathy and you cannot understand other people. And, and, you know, I, I think that's what's getting us into some really major problems. Um, so yes, cultivating wrongness and mistakes and being tolerant of our own, um, imperfections, I think is really one of the most important things. And, and, and also, I think that we don't have to only think of it as mistakes, right? Like complexity, like valuing. And I think poetry really helps us do that. Like we get, we get a bad rap, I think, because, and I'm hoping this is changing. So if, I, if there are high school teachers in the audience, like, please, yay, don't do this. I'm sure you're not doing it anymore. But when I was in high school, in this type of high school I went to, poetry was a code, right? And then you had to like decode the poem and you had to, you had to guess like with telepathy what your teacher thought of it. And that's it, what made you a good reader of poetry. Like, ugh, who would want to? And then everyone hated poetry because it was like, you couldn't know. Mm -hmm. um, instead of, wow, Poetry is the most amazing thing because it resists simple, simplicity. It resists simplification. It, it, it loves complexity and ambiguity. Not ambiguity like you can't ever understand it, but that's if you're really going to read poems, you have to, you have mm -hmm. to be willing to, to, to be patient with something that's not paraphrasable and you know, not reducible. Mm -hmm. How great. So you're, you're going to be wrong most of the time. That's delightful. <laughs> this might be a, re a related question from the audience. Um, it says, one's own personal and universal wrongness is all good and fine. And you invite people to embrace and explore their wrongness. Are we ready to, to embrace other people's wrongness and simply respond with our own wrongness? What happens when wrongness becomes wrong or worse? politically correct yeah that's why that thank you for that question that is what is making me think that i need to rethink this and and that's changed since before this election and i was thinking about um june jordan's poem uh poem for my right for of my rights for my rights poem someone i don't remember uh the the that little word in there is is i'm lost i'm losing but i think it's toward the end of the poem she says um Wrong is not my name. 
Um, I wish I had the poem in front of me. Um, and I think, you know, I can't get that image out of my mind of, of all of these times in the election where Trump just, you're wrong, wrong, wrong. Um, and then the deeper level of believing that you could possibly, you know, have the, the, oh, the nerve and the, and the soullessness to say that one person is less than another or wrong in some kind of way that gives you the right to, you know, deny them the full opportunity and protection is, is just inconceivable. So that is absolutely antithetical to what I'm talking about. And except that the word has been used um, to mean that. And that, I guess I would say, I mean, that's demagoguery. It's not, it's not, I don't know what else to call it. But I need to rethink that because if that's the association, uh, it's really important to me. Uh, you know, I, 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 this is not a good example of it, but I was thinking about before the election, like, oh, I want to get one of those nasty woman T-shirts. And then I was like, after the election, I was like, I don't, I'm going to wear, I don't want that T-shirt at all, at all. Um, you know, you can't reclaim a word when it's currently being used in, in that. I don't have the power right now to reclaim that word. I hope I get it. But if that's really what's happening, then I need to rethink the use of that word. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a tough one. Mm-hmm. You said the lectures have changed your life. In what way? I stopped exercising. <laughs> <laughs> Um, congratulations <laughs> yeah um, well first so start with the positive um, I I wasn't writing um, it's a long story that's in that's in some of my other lectures but um, I had stopped writing poems and I had to write the lectures because I'm a very good girl and I had agreed to do them, and I was getting paid. So I was like, got to do it. Um, and uh, it was really, really hard to write them. And in the course of writing them, um, I would often procrastinate um, and sort of just hit a wall over and over again. And then I was writing, I started to write poems in that space. Um, and the poems were sort of like, in a way, really part of the lectures. Mm-hmm. Um, and like if I set myself up a series of ethical guidelines and rules in one of my lectures, like, okay, well, I'm never going to do this in a poem again because that's, that's no good. That's, that's how you end up being Kenny Goldsmith. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, I, would not, I wouldn't still do that, believe me. But I was like, what if I write this poem? What if I, whoa, can I, you know, so I, so I would like you know, do the opposite in the poem of what I was saying in the lecture. So now, so one thing that's good is that I, I started writing again and I have a new manuscript and whether it's good or not, I don't know. But so that's good. And, um, one thing that's been bad is that, um, 
it's related to a good thing, is that I have never had an experience in my life of thinking that anyone really thought what I had to say was interesting and important. And I think that as a poet, I, I, I mostly write out of a sense of being marginalized and being all alone in the world. And it's always a shock and surprise to me that somebody is reading the poems and it's deeply sustaining and meaningful to me, but I never, I don't have this. And I think that when I went out and was giving the lectures, like writing them was sort of torture, but giving them was so amazing. And I, I do think that that's part of what the series kind of maybe was for in a way. Like, I just think it's such a, th we don't have anything like this anywhere where poets like actually get to have a live audience and then to have these questions and to like it is it is astonishing to me to have this level of interest and attention like I'm sorry to keep going on and on about it like as if I'm now abusing the privilege um, uh, but when I went home I would traveled all over the country giving these lectures and I had this kind of maybe not this nice, but very close. And I had before and after lots of, like, the, the class we went to, and I got to meet all these poets in different parts of the, of the country and talk to them and, and, and think about what they were doing and what I was doing. And it was, it was a, a totally new experience for me that I, that I have never had before. And then I would go home, and um, it wasn't so great. It was like where did you put my winter boots and you've been gone for a really long time and we're so disappointed in you and you know it was like emotional whiplash of the worst kind and I, I say that because and I, and I think it also has to do I think my particular kind of uh, the disruption of that for me was related to gender and was related to uh, being a mother of three um, particularly three boys um, and to, to not having felt, uh, you know, I don't want to use the word empowered, but it, it was, it was a shock. Mm -hmm. And then I had to think about like, well, you know, like tomorrow I'm giving my very last lecture and my husband is so lovely and such a feminist and just wanted these lectures to be over. <laughs> like, just, he could not wait. And I really need to think about that. Like, what do I want for the rest of my life? I don't think anyone else is ever going to ask me to write other lectures, and I'm never going to get to talk to this many people again. So what does that mean for me? Yeah. I have so many more questions to ask you, but I just have, I'm going to have to limit myself to just two um, here. And I want to talk quickly and ask you about your podcast um, which I love, and you should all listen to it. Um, and I want to ask quickly if you, you know, why you launched it, and if its launch was related in some way to the lectures. Definitely, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I, I didn't. I mean, I knew it was related to like the loss of the lectures. Like, oh, what am I going to do? I want to keep talking to people, and and to somehow recreate some of those conversations that I had. Some of the Q and As. The Q and As for me have been the most important part of this whole experience. Um, and talking to people before and after. So the, lec so the, so the podcast was very much about that. I, I mean, I also did have like a psychological insight only after, you know, the sixth episode or whatever, where I was like, 
I cannot believe the lengths I've gone to <laughs> so that other people would email me or tweet at me and tell me they enjoyed spending time with me. <laughs> I was like, that's so fucked up. <laughs> Like, maybe all I needed was, like, a friend who'd be like, do you want to have lunch? <laughs> you know? Um, but but it's not, you know, it, in seriousness, it's not, like, you don't have those conversations usually at lunch. So I really wanted to have that that kind of a conversation and not an interview and to talk to the, and it gives you, like, Kathy Park Hong wasn't going to, like, say, hey, come over and I'll tell you what I'm working on. She's, I'm not friendly enough with her. I, I, you know, but if I say, oh, I have a podcast and there's all these other strangers listening to us, it's bizarre the way in which that, that changes, like the, the presence of an audience um, or the, the, you know, eventual audience will allow people, you know, will, will motivate people to let you come and, and talk to them. And so I got, get to talk to mm -hmm. Kathy Park Hong, like, uh, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, last question. Um, Alice Notley will appear in our series later oh. this year in April, and I didn't know when I invited you both that you that she's a huge influence for you, and that you you know you are a huge fan of her. Why should this audience come back to hear Alice Notley in April? Well, um, okay. Here's a stupid reason you should come back. Um, I read with Alice Notley. Um, I, I just worship Alice Notley. I just, I just think she's amazing, and I think she's totally. She's. I mean, more and more people are reading her, but I think that that she's still not read enough. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that, in part because she is a disobedient poet. She does not conform. She does not give a shit what you think, at all. Um, she is an amazing reader. Her work is fabulous. But if you ever see her read, she's not reading for you. She's, if you hear her interviewed, and like if you interview her, good luck. You, she's, <laughs> Don't you <know>. come. <laughs> no, do come. It's fantastic. Like someone will ask, like she, I've seen her interview. Someone will ask her some question, which is like a fine question, and then she'll be like, "Yeah, I'm not going to answer that." And then she'll just talk <laughs> about owls or something. But but like she she is an incredibly powerful nonconformist poet. Every book she writes, she reinvents her own form. She reinvents um, the, her relationship to language. She has no fear. It's, I, I've never, I mean, I, I'm full of fear. Everything, like, I'm made of fear. She has <laughs> no fear. Um, wait, that wasn't the dumb reason. That was a good reason. The dumb reason is um, a personal reason, which is I, I just... I just am so in awe of her and inspired by her and also inspired by the fact that she keeps remaking herself. She's published with like a million different presses. She just, she has like 20 manuscripts, like always just, you know, sitting by the door waiting for someone to be willing to publish them. Like she just, she just keeps going and going and going and going. Um, she, I mean, everyone should read Descent of Alette. Um, she like, was writing about gender fluidity before anybody was talking about gender fluidity. Not before there was gender fluidity, because there was, but before anyone was talking about it. Read Descent of Alette. She's, she's the, I think she's the first woman to really write an epic um, in poetry, but it's also an anti-epic. But anyway, I read with her at Columbia College um, 
and uh, it's the only time I've ever um, thrown up <laughs> from anxiety about reading with someone. I was so overwhelmed. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to read with her and she's going to hear me read and I'm, I suck and she's amazing. And so I went in the bathroom and threw up. And, but I'm not a thrower-upper. So um, <laughs> I, that's never happened to me before. So that's a sign of how amazing she is. <laughs> that was a dumb reason. Yeah. Well, we'll see you before April. Um, thank you, Rachel. You have 150 new friends in Seattle tonight. Thank you all of you for coming. So, thank Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Rachel Zucker is the author of five collections of poetry, including The Pedestrians. She lives in New York, where she teaches at NYU. Zucker spoke as part of the Seattle Arts and Lectures Poetry Series on November 14th at McCall Hall. Thanks again to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon. Thank you.